In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. His name is Franz Jägerstatter. He was an Austrian farmer right around the time that Austria was annexed into Nazi Germany, what was called the Anschluss. And by virtue of who he was and the age he was, he was conscripted into the German army and was required to sign an oath of allegiance to Hitler. Jägerstatter was willing to be trained. In fact, he, he went through boot camp, and at the end of it, he asked if he could become a medic, if he was going to have to serve in the army at all. But he would not sign an oath. And all of this is happening not in a vacuum, but in a particular context. There in the Austrian town that he was a part of, he was a minority of minorities. He saw what Hitler was doing. He saw who he was targeting. He saw what was happening. And he saw how the church had been co-opted, used as a force to multiply the influence that Hitler might have in the region. And knew it was coming. And he knew he had a sort of a simple choice in front of him. Does he follow along with where most of his countrymen were going, or would he step out and do something different? And in that was his struggle. Because it would have been easy for him to go with the proverbial flow, but his conscience haunted him at that prospect. Franz Jägerstatter's life was made into a film about two years ago. It's by Terence Malick. I've referenced it before. It's called A Hidden Life. And I want to show you a clip from about a third of the way through that film in which you will see him but you will hear nothing from him. You will actually hear from an artist that he is friends with who is adorning cathedral in Jägerstatter's town. And so I want you to keep your eye on Franz while you're keeping an ear on the painter and listen to the struggle that Franz finds himself in. of the prophets. I help people look up from those pews and dream. They look up and they imagine that if they lived back in Christ's time, they wouldn't have done what the others did. They would have murdered those whom they now adore. I paint all this suffering, but I don't suffer myself. I make a living of it.
What we do is just create sympathy. We create, we create admirers. Don't create followers. Christ's life is a demand. We don't want to be reminded of it. So we don't have to see what happens to the truth. A darker time is coming. And men will be more clever. They won't fight the truth. They'll just ignore it. I paint their comfortable Christ with a halo over his head. How can I show what I haven't lived? Someday I might have the courage to venture, not yet. Someday I'll I'll paint the true Christ. You hear two things. You witness two things in that moment. You, you hear lament and you see unrest. In the words of the painter, you have this very candid acknowledgement that most of his depictions are distortions that what he does by way of his craft evokes sympathy, it evokes admiration, but it doesn't engender a desire to follow, and he, he laments that. And then you see in Franz an unrest, because for him in that moment, if to follow Jesus would come at a cost, is that cost worth it for him? This morning, we're going to turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark. It's been a while since we've just listened to Jesus alone for a while. And we're going to give our attention to one word, which I'd like to argue perhaps is the most misunderstood command of anything that Jesus said, and that is the word, follow. Follow me. And our prayer, our our goal, my, my desire for our consideration of this book is that we might take a cue from the painter there and be wary of, of simply having sympathy for Jesus. And most of all, be wary of only admiring him. You admire a lot of people, and so do I. We hold them in high regard. We have great respect for them. But if there's anything that we might learn for the Gospel of Mark is that there's one thing you can't do. Please don't admire him. So as we begin today, we're going to listen to the first 20 verses of the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to hear what we can't do, and we're going to consider what we must do, because as John Stott put it a long time ago, 
The ultimate question is absolutely plain, even to the man in the street to whom culture and theology are all closed books. It's this. Is Jesus to be worshipped or only to be admired? Let's consider the first chapter and hear what we can't do and instead hear what we must do. I wonder if you might stand to hear Mark chapter 1, the first 20 verses. Our central text for today is found in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. What can we not do if we would listen to Jesus? We can't admire him. You have pictures on your wall of people that you admire, and those are perfectly excellent things, and nothing to be. I don't besmirch you in the least for it. But when it comes to merely respecting or appreciating him, I want to give you some reasons why that just doesn't follow if we take Jesus on his terms. I want to give you four really brief reasons why, why we can't admire him, why it just doesn't work. And the first reason is because who is speaking for him on his behalf. You, ever, you, ever, you notice books these days, it's like the first 10 pages of a book is a bunch of testimonials from, from people that say, you should read this book. And I can't get it. Like in earlier days, it was just like, here's the book. Read it if you want. Take it or leave it. But now it's kind of like, apparently the, the number of books, there is no um, end to them. You've you got to find a way to sell it. So you've got to put 10 pages of testimonials. There's at least three voices that are speaking for Jesus in this moment. 
and it's who's speaking for him that explains why we can't, can't merely admire him. The first one is Isaiah and Malachi. They're kind of a, they're kind of a duo, a dynamic duo in this one. You, you hear in verses 2 and 3 a reference to Isaiah and Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. People get ready. There's a train coming. Something's going to happen. You've got to make way. And to really hear that, you have to realize that of no priest and no prophet and no king was words like that ever spoken. Jesus is somehow a different person. And therefore, for, for Isaiah and Malachi to be invoked here at the beginning of Mark's gospel is to suggest that Jesus was anticipated. He's not a Johnny-come-lately that just kind of showed up. Oh, well, this will work. This must be plan B. No, that he was plan A. He was waited for. He is part of a much larger storyline than even what we're going to find here in just what he says and does. He was anticipated. And therefore, he is more, more than we all imagine when we first see him. He has a certain street credibility because of the storyline. Who else speaks for him? Let's, let's start with John. John, the, the so-called baptizer. He, he is the advance team. He is the warm-up band. He is here to come tell everybody, wake up! Forgiveness is necessary, and I will baptize you. But look, you think I'm worthy to come out and, and hear from and, and to follow on? You ain't seen nothing yet. Verse 7, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. What he's referring to there is a cultural practice that if you were even a slave of a master, not even slaves were required to take off the shoes of their master. The, the master had to do that for himself. And, and John the Baptist is saying, I'm not, even, I'm not even that high. Isaiah and Malachi are out to tell us that Jesus is anticipated, but, but John the Baptizer is out to tell us that Jesus, Jesus is exalted. He is more than just a wise person. He is more than just one who is a counselor. And he is... He is one that has something far more than credentials. Think of the person that you most admire. You've all probably got somebody. And if you don't, you should think about it. Somebody that's really had an impact on you. Um, you see them. They come through the door. You might smile at them. You might you know, announce your jubilation that they're there. You might hug them, whatever the case might be. But... Um, it's probably unlikely that you will bow down and kiss their feet. It's probably not likely. But John is out to tell us that with Jesus, it would be not only likely, but fitting. He's anticipated, he's exalted. That's what we're hearing already. And he's one more voice, and, and that comes from no less than the Lord himself. John is baptizing in the Jordan for forgiveness of sins. Jesus shows up and asks to be baptized, whoa, what's, what is this about? Does, do you need, are you confessing? Do you, do you need baptism? What is this for? And then when you watch, what happens? The, the heavens are rended open. Uh, the Spirit descends like a dove upon him, and there a declaration is made, verse 11. 
You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus hasn't said anything yet. He hasn't done anything yet. And then all of a sudden, you hear the Lord himself saying, this, this one, beloved, already? What is that about? Not just anticipated, not just exalted, but, but beloved. Look, um, if your house catches on fire and, and the fireman shows up and, and rescues you from your bedroom and, and takes a bunch of uh, smoke inhalation and cuts and bruises, but they get you out and they rescue you, can you imagine the moment in which you try to say thank you by buying them an Amazon gift card for 25 bucks? It doesn't fit. You're not really grappling with what they've just done and at what cost and what they've delivered you to. If Jesus is beloved, then admiration, uh, admire him if you will, but it's, it's not really grappling with who Jesus is on his own terms. Who speaks for Jesus means that admiration is off the table. The second reason, not only who speaks for him, but who proceeds from him? Okay, I, what? Huh? It's a kind of a theological term there. Let me unpack it for you. Three times in those 20 verses, you heard a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who descends upon him like a dove. It's the Spirit who curiously, right after that, drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted. But it is John who says, I have come to baptize you with water, but, the Lord, but Jesus has come to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't get any more of a profile about the Holy Spirit at all in this passage. That'll come later. But at least we know what this is. Whatever was affirmed in a water baptism is confirmed by the Spirit doing something. That the forgiveness that John speaks of through water baptism is somehow sealed in you, confirmed to your conscience by way of the Spirit. And the implication I draw from what is given to us for those who would follow him is this. Whatever it means to follow him, you're going to need help. You are not alone in this. You go to Tony Rickman's class at the Y, um, the help he will offer, he will, he will show you the number of exercises that you will do, the number of burpees, and all of that. And he will give his inimitable smile, and he will encourage you, and, right? Let's go! He'll do that, he'll do that. But um, he won't do the burpees for you. And he might look at you as he looked at me and said, good luck. <laughs> and then, you know, he'll hand you the O2 canister to carry along with you. He will do everything he can for you, but he can't do the burpees for you. He can't do the workout for you. The Lord Jesus, in giving us the Holy Spirit, is saying to you, I am with you in this. This is not a run, slow boy, run kind of reference. What proceeds from him means that we can't simply admire him. You, you know, look, we, we, we admire people who have imparted something to us. Their influence has lasted with us. But what we're talking about here that Jesus is, is bestowing to us, what is proceeding from him for us that somehow indwells us, and all those things, like, what does that even mean? It's more than just the admiration we have for something else, for someone else. 
You can't admire him because of who's speaking for him. You can't admire him for who's proceeding from him, but you also can't admire him for who's targeting him. Right after the baptism, it says the Spirit drives him into the wilderness to go on his 40-day fasting retreat. Who's in for that? Why? It's really fascinating reflections upon some commentators why Jesus would go into the wilderness. Why, why did he have to go into the wilderness in order to be met? And they would argue that something's going on here that's behind the scenes, and it's this. Israel, in the wilderness, learned how to depend on God like they never had before. When you've got nothing else to support you, no other props, no other protections. You have to learn something, and it's only in that setting that you will. And therefore, the wilderness represents a way in which Jesus learns, reflects, depends, and obedience upon the Father by being in the wilderness. And what does he do there? He is tested by who? The adversary, the accuser, the one who loves to steal, kill, and destroy, otherwise known as the devil. Now, you can watch the Simpsons Halloween episode all you want. It makes fun of the devil even existing, and that's why you circle back to what C.S. Lewis said. The best thing, I don't think he said it, I think he referenced it from somebody else. Uh, the, the best trick devil ever pulled was making people believe he didn't exist. But Jesus goes there, and he's met by who? That guy, the accuser. Now, why do I bring that up? When I was six, it was a Sunday afternoon. I'm chilling, my parents are chilling knock at the door. And for some reason, I went and answered the door because the six-year-old should always do that, right? <laughs> and there at the door is a policeman in a plainclothes office, plainclothes outfit, and two other policemen in full view with two shotguns. I opened the door. Hi, are your parents home? I'll get them. Cop cars are descending upon my address. And everybody's got guns blazing. And my father walks out going, what's going on here? Somebody had phoned back in the day before you could trace calls. and so like Somebody had phoned in and said that there's some sort of hostage situation going on at my house or some sort of domestic abuse thing going on. And there were guns apparently part of the deal. And so they've all descended on here to do what policemen do, to protect and I don't remember a thing that was said that day. I'm six, right? But I do remember one officer talking to my daddy and his hands shaking because he, he knew what might have been the case at the call that they had received. Their response revealed the sense of the threat fortunately on that day, which was fake. For Jesus to show up in the wilderness and for the accuser to show up, ha <laughs> What does that reveal? The response from who shows up reveals the threat that Jesus is to him. Jesus is not just some sort of statesman, some philosopher that's come to dispense much wisdom. He's come to do battle. He's a warrior. And therefore, the response that he gets reveals the threat that Jesus is to the accuser. And by virtue, by in turn, here's the, here's the, here's the kicker then. If Jesus is the threat, then, then Jesus being the threat to the accuser that he is, that represents yours and my plight, our real struggle. Our real struggle, as Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. It is against the powers and the principalities of darkness, whatever that means. 
So friends, if you think the most important thing in your life is to figure out how you feel about yourself, hmm, for Jesus to show up and let the accuser show up, you're, it's actually worse than you thought. Your plight is deeper than you know. Because if it's the accuser, look, what does the author of Hebrews say about the accuser? He's the one that holds the keys of death and holds everybody in fear of death through lifelong slavery. Do you ever think about how much of your life is out to ignore, deny, or avoid death or thinking about death? You ever think about that? How many of the things that you do are trying to pretend like it's not going to happen? If Jesus has come to do war with him, then you can, re you can respect Frederick Douglass and Gandhi all you want, and they are worthy of that greatest respect, but Jesus apparently has come to fight on a different scale. And therefore, admire those others reasonably and responsibly, but you just... It doesn't fit to think that I'm going to simply admire Jesus. Not on the basis of who's speaking for him, who's proceeding from him, and who's targeting him. And there's one last reason why admiration doesn't work. It's what's arriving with him. If it's the accuser that's showing up, then apparently something's about to happen. Verse 15. The time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. That there is a decisive moment that is happening, that there is a turning point in the history of all things, and therefore, what God is out to do, whatever his purposes are, whatever power it might be, and whatever presence with which he might be here, that's changing when it comes to Jesus. Everything is turning on Jesus. All of that is in play. It's at work. And therefore, for Jesus to say, the kingdom of God is at hand, the whole ball of wax has to do with him. God has come to reclaim what is his. He's come to rescue those who are lost, and he's come to renew everything that is broken. That's what's arriving with Jesus. And therefore, I, I might also say unto us, we who are Western Christians, who are shaped by the whole idea of individualism to an extent we might never have dreamed of, you and I must see that the most important question in your life is not that you feel good about yourself or that you eat well. That the kingdom of God has that in mind, but something much larger. That you must see yourself in a particular way, to be sure, but you must also not turn a blind eye into all the ways in which the kingdom of God is being challenged in your world. What's arriving with him means that we can't simply admire him. Now it's at this point, hearing all those reasons why admiration doesn't work, that there may be some of you here who think, okay, that's all great, but uh, you know, Jesus is interesting, but, but that's as far as I go. And why isn't this just propaganda? What's propaganda? It's, you know, you, you <laughs> we're familiar with it these days, right? Um, all sorts of versions of it. It's an attempt to tell a certain story in order to affect a certain outcome. That's propaganda. So there's lots of ancient stories out there, mythologies or whatever, that's propaganda. So why, do, why isn't the story of Jesus just one more example of propaganda such that we should just take Jesus as a fantasy? Look at verse 14 just for a second. 
is really subtle, and maybe I'm asking too much of it. But, but there in verse 14, now after John was arrested, wait, sorry, <laughs> what? When, when, did, when did that happen? Now you know the story because you read it before, or you, maybe you heard it before, you know his head's up on a platter. But, I'm sorry, why, why did you bring that up? Who, if this is a legend, <laughs> if you're writing a legend, that's really bad storytelling. You don't just drop a bomb like that. By the way, John gets his head cut off. What? And that's why C.S. Lewis, when people would come to him and say, how, how can you become a Christian? This is just one more myth of Sisyphus. This is, just, this, is, this is Prometheus or whatever you want to call it. Just fill in the gap. This is just some other story. And, and, and C.S. Lewis says this. Look, I, I've been reading poems and romances and vision literature and legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I, I know that not one of them is like this. Uh, take it from the one who's, who's done a little research into what legends are like, how fantasies are written, and you don't, you don't drop that kind of storytelling part into your, into your legend. Now, again, that's maybe asking a lot. That's really subtle. But, but why else isn't this propaganda? Um, first of all, check your watch. It's 2021. <laughs> We're still talking about him. Not only are we talking about, we're still gathering. And not only gathering, um, can you imagine a, a person m more, um, more criticized and ridiculed and, and absolutely excoriated in so many quarters that you are familiar with? Can you imagine that? It's, it's 2,000 years since he walked the earth and we're still talking about it. Check your watch. And then, at the same time you're checking your watch, check the map. Um, not only are we still talking about it, it's still spreading. And mostly in places that have nothing to do with America. Why is that? Well, they're just slow. Really? It's still spreading. So check your watch, check your map, and then check your heart. The reason they are still making films like A Hidden Life is because the story of someone who stepped out in the midst of great struggle and through great sacrifice brought homage to Jesus and to the truth. That story, that story still kicks. That story still resonates. We're still talking about stories like that. When it comes to thinking about death and about rescue through sacrifice and about the centrality of forgiveness in all things, oh, check your own heart. Even if you don't believe it, even if you still think Jesus is a fantasy, tell me that those stories don't still stick with you. Does any of that prove that this is not propaganda? No. Does any of this prove that Jesus was anything more than just a pitiable figure who ends up dead someday through crucifixion? It proves nothing. But it does clarify, it is rather clarifying for everybody in this room and anybody that might listen to this again. It does rule out at least one important possibility in how you might respond to Jesus. You can either ignore him as a fantasy, that's fine, but the one thing you can't do is simply admire him. I've just saved you time. If you just want to admire him, you are having to twist and distort things in all manner of ways, much as the painter was concerned about his paintings. If we can't admire him, what's the only option that we've got before us? If you, look, if you, if you don't want to ignore him, because like you realize, ah, I can't just ignore him, but I'm not allowed to admire him because that doesn't really fit with the data. What's my other option? Hmm. Uh, Jesus has one. 
your option is to follow him. And you, we should say here as we round out on the last leg of this sermon, it's this. You've got to realize that for Jesus to say to, to James and John and, and to Peter and Andrew, follow me, um, nobody did that then. If you were a rabbi who, who studied the law and who would mentor someone, students would come to you and say, hey, can I tag along? Can I? Would you be my mentor? Could, could I follow you? And they would say, ah, okay, yeah, sure, let's go. You stick with me. You buy the hummus. Um, for Jesus to say, follow me, that either makes him a narcissist or something else. Because he's the one making the invitation, not others coming to him. And it's, you know, Mark, he, he goes so fast. He, he talks about stuff and he puffs his cigarette and he moves on. But for, for James and John to drop their nets and Peter and Andrew to drop their nets, what did they have to see in him to go, <laughs> I'm in? I, I don't know. But they trusted. So what does it mean to follow him? I have excellent news for you. Everything you need to know about following him is in this passage. The rest of it is just details. The rest of it is just implications. All that you need to know about following Jesus is in this passage. And in fact, not only is everything you need to know here, the way you begin to follow him is the same way in which you continue the rest of your life following him. It's not like phase one and then phase two through 94. Phase one is the whole thing. What does it mean to follow him? It's just it's three little things. I can count them on my own hand. Turning, trusting, and training. That's the whole of what it means to follow him. Turning, trusting, and training. The first two are in verse 15. You've already heard the first part. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom of God. Turning and trusting. Turning, repent. What does that mean? Literally means turn around. Uh, how many spouses on how many car trips have, have said to the person driving, honey, I think you're going the wrong way. What are you talking about? I know where I'm going. Honey, I think you're going the wrong way. Even Siri is telling you, you're going the wrong way. And you have to turn around. You have to turn around. For Jesus to say repent, for him to say turn, it means that all of us, he doesn't qualify, he doesn't say some of you really need to repent and the rest of you are doing really swimmingly good. He says repent. That you're on a collision course for something you know not of. The proverbialist says there is a way that seems right to a man but in the way it leads to death. Jesus is saying turning and trusting go hand in hand and they all come down to believing that in him is life. And the life was the light of men. And that turning and trusting that what he has for us is life is not simply turning away from the wicked things, the evil things, the self-destructive things. It certainly includes that, but it's not only that. It is also turning from your belief that there's all sorts of good things that you can do that will merit God's love of you that can somehow compensate for everything that you regret. 
I told you, follow is the most misunderstood command that Jesus will ever utter. Some people think when Jesus says follow me, he means don't worry about following me. That's a misunderstanding. But another misunderstanding of following is to believe if you'll follow me, someday if you prove yourself, I will love you. That also is a distortion. If you think his call to follow him is so that one day he might have affection for you, newsflash, he didn't just come to teach you something, he came to die for you. And I think that's a pretty good evidence that he already has affections for you. And therefore, our following him is not about earning his affections. It's about believing that his affections are deeper than you and I might know, and his love is steadfast and will not change even on the days that you deny him. You turn, you trust that. And as you do, then there's that third thing that we sometimes forget, and it's this idea of training. Follow me, he tells those four boys that drop their nets. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will turn you into something that you are not. I will fashion you. I will shape you. I will cultivate in you what is not already true of you. And you dudes who know all about throwing out nets, guess what? You're going to do the same thing, but a different objective. It's going to be with people. He's going to turn you into people that, that somehow become so impressed so, so astounded by who Jesus is that they want others to know what they've come to know. It's nothing more than this lovely excerpt from a Mary Oliver poem that I've shared with you before. What is it? It's this. Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. That's it. What's a fisher of people? You pay attention until you're astonished, until you tell about it. In your own special way. In your own unique temperament, you are being made into those who are like him, made more like him, such that you are different on account of him, as a consequence of him, such that you would want others to know about that too. It's nothing more obnoxious than that. Let me tell you the story. You want to listen? I'll tell you. He is making you into something that you are not. Tish Harrison Warren, uh, she's an Anglican priest up in Pittsburgh. She wrote a wonderful op-ed piece. You're going to hear more about that next week. But in the opening of the piece, she talks about how she had just graduated from seminary and she was going to work with um, immigrant children. And ups, uh, as she's going through it, this Catholic priest comes up to her and, and says to her, um, you don't have the life of prayer and silence necessary to sustain the work you're doing. I was a little insulted, she said. What did he know? But over the course of the next two years, he was proved right. That what it means to follow Jesus means to, that there is a, there is a wrestling match. There is a being furnished and, and, and fashioned into something that you are not. And it's, it's not about, again, it's not about acting in certain ways and doing certain things and inhabiting certain rhythms so that he might love you one day. It's actually about being furnished in a way that makes you useful to him in a variety of contexts. We, we understand the turning and, and, and trusting thing, but sometimes we forget the training part. And, and really the training part is just a lifelong practice in learning how to turn and trust every single time. The things that you are doing that you know are killing you on the inside, but you still do them. The ways in which you are turning a blind eye to all the degradation around you and just being focused on your own house 
It's just turning and trusting that he has something better for you in the process. Turning, trusting, training. It's the whole of life. And it's why you hear in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 3, you hear this, Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's not just a one-time thing, it's a life thing. Franz Eggerstadter, when he became more vocal about his objections to the Nazi party, was eventually imprisoned, and in July of 1943, he was executed by the guillotine. But a priest came and visited him the month before and spoke with him at length. And in that priest's memory, he remembered something that Jägerstadter had said. The month before he died, I am completely bound in inner union with the Lord. He wasn't out to perform anything. He wasn't out to prove anything. He had just come to understand Jesus and follow him in such a way that he felt like inner union. It is with a little reluctance that I even tell you his story, not because it's not worth hearing, but because you might sit up there and go, well, my life will never be a film. And that's, you know what? That's probably true. And I could never be what he does. And, and will my li- do I have to go and risk my life of being executed in order to be faithful? No. But the subtext of the whole film is, do you really think that your choice will make any difference? Do you really think, Franz, that anything you do will ever be remembered? And that haunted him. But he realized it was not about being remembered, and it was not about being heroic. It was about being faithful. Friends, yours and my story may show up on no one's radar anytime soon. But in our little story, there are opportunities in which we might follow him. To some of you in this room who have never, so to speak, dropped your nets because you've sensed an invitation from Jesus to follow you, follow him. Maybe today's the day. You've got to start sometime. Kids, adults, whatever it may be, maybe there's a point in which you sense he is saying, follow me, and maybe you've never ever voiced the idea of saying, I'm in. No time like the present. If you haven't, let's talk. Repent and be baptized. His love for you is everlasting. And for others of you in this room who who know you are involved in things that are, (laughs) they're killing you. Turn. Trusted in him is life. And in that life, there's abundance. And for those of you that have forgotten that maybe in knowing him, there is a training to be more like him. What you heard Allison say, what you've heard us say over the last several weeks about ways in which you might become involved around here, we're not doing that for our own good. We're doing that to train us, to train our hearts. Brothers, sisters, welcome guests, believers and atheists alike, please don't admire him. Let's learn what it means to follow him. Let's pray. Um, it seems so unwieldy. And um, hearing that story, uh, 
makes us think there's just no way of even starting again. I don't think you mean for us to think that way at all. What does it mean today, Father, to, to keep the Sabbath holy and to, to reach for you, to seek you, to, to put off what is... to put off what is uh, slowly uh, taking away life from within us. Father, help us to, to see Jesus as the one who is beautiful and lifted up. And then uh, would you show us today, as it relates to us, what it means to follow you. That's all. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. One way we respond is to put words in our mouth to clarify for us what it means to follow. So I wonder if you might join me in this confession of our faith. And then when we're concluded, stand and we'll sing. In fact, why don't you stand for this too? Let's join me. As followers of Jesus Christ, living in this world, which some seek to control, but which other views with despair, we declare with joy and trust, our world belongs to God from the beginning through all the crises of our times until His kingdom fully comes. God keeps covenant forever. Our world belongs to Him. God is King. Let the earth be glad. Christ is victor. His rule is begun. Hallelujah. The Spirit is at work. Renewing the creation. Praise the Lord. As we said last week, um, I wonder if some of your first words when we conclude here today might be to somebody that you don't know. Go with this word of benediction. May God the Father bless you. God the Son heal you. God the Holy Spirit give you strength. May God the Holy and Undivided Trinity guard your body, save your soul, bring you safely to the heavenly country where he lives and reigns forever and ever. May the presence of our triune God be with you all. Peace be with you.